So today we're starting our Advent series. It's going to be three parts, and then we're going to have Christmas Eve, which will be kind of a, a mixture of everything. Uh, I've named the series Given, um, and we're going to spend time emphasizing. Uh, today I'm going to look at the, kind of I'm going to tell the story, the, the story of God and how it culminates with Jesus. And then we're going to spend each week focusing on the three gifts that the wise men or the magi gave to Jesus, and what those signify, what those symbolize, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and how those gifts really spoke a larger story about who this baby was going to be, what he was coming to do, and how he was going to change the world. And so today we're going to be looking at the first part, which is going to be, like I said, the story and then gold. And, and where we're, we're we're wanting to do is as we're celebrating this season, we're celebrating the most notorious, most amazing person ever be born. Partly where I get the name of our series is coming from Isaiah 9, 6, which says this, for unto us a child is born, to unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. I know, seriously, right? Isaiah 9, 6. It's a good verse. I'm with you. No. He's like, amen. Let's go. Let's get, let's get a little crazy, right? The cool part about this is, this is that we see that although we're going to spend time focusing on what was given to Jesus, that ultimately Jesus' coming is what's given to us and why that matters. So with that, let's get started. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you the story of the world, and I'm going to try and do it in a rather quick manner. For some that have been here at any uh, part of time, this, is, um, this may be repetitive, but it's one of those things that we need to be always reminded of. And, and the reason for that is, is that if I, the Bible, I grew up in a culture, in a, spirit, in a Christian culture that basically communicated that the Bibles existed to tell me what to do. That if you struggled with anything, open the Bible, the Bible will tell you what to do. That this is a manual that you need to follow, and then if you do really well, then God's happy, and if you do really bad, then God's mad. And that the whole purpose exists is to tell me how I should live my life. And although there's truths in there, and although this, the Bible is, does have things that we should do and things we shouldn't do, okay, the purpose of this is really to communicate something about God. It's not about us trying to figure out what we should do. It's a story about what God has done. It's a story of God. It's a story of God from Genesis to Revelations redeeming the world, pursuing a rebellious people and coming finally to save them, redeeming the world. It's our story. And we, as we read it, find where we fit into his story. And so the story begins like this. You may have heard it. In the beginning, God made the world. He made everything in it. And as he's making the world, the crown of his achievement, the highlight of his creation is human beings. The Bible says that he made humans in his image. Now that idea of being an image bearer or being made in God's image has significant ramifications. In the book of Genesis, which is where I'm pulling this part of the story from, we see that the reason that God made his image was to do and function in a, sp a specific way. It gives us 
our purpose right off the get-go. The first thing that image-bearing basically means is representation. That our lives and how humans were to function was to communicate something about God to each other and to the rest of the world. There was a representation. It was a mirroring aspect, right? The word image is almost like a reflection, that we're reflecting God to one another and to the rest of the world. But also with image bearing comes the second, and that's responsibility. God says, you know, care for the world and steward and, and, and basically like have dominion over the world. It wasn't like conquer it, but it was like cultivate it, care for it, steward it. There's a responsibility with image bearing that as human beings, we, we're meant to care for his creation and care for those in his creation. And the third aspect of image bearing is relationship, that, that part of imaging and, and communicating something about God was really the idea of relationship, right? We've got the three R's. We want to be finick, right? Relationship. The God being in relationship, the God of the world existed in relationship for all of time. There, before time existed, Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship loving and caring and, and preferring one another, right? That's why he says that God is love because love exists not in isolation but in relationship. And so we have this idea of God making the world, making human beings in his image, and then inviting human beings into the relationship that he has been participating in for all of eternity. And in that relationship, in that function, we're communicating something about God. It sounds beautiful. It sounds wonderful. In that moment, we had full access to God. It says that God would kind of walk in the cool of the night with, with Adam and with Eve. They had full access, and they were fully accepted. They were perfect. There was nothing wrong. There was, the, their relationship was described as naked and unashamed. There was nothing to be ashamed from. They were perfect. That's how God made the world. There was no sin. There was no suffering. There was no pain. There was no brokenness. There was none of that. Sounds awesome. But we know we don't live in that world because the next part of our story is that humans rebelled against God. God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. God said, this is, you can have anything else, like everything else, but this tree is evil. It's, do not eat of this tree. This, there's an option, right? With love, love cannot be a forced thing, right? There has to be an option to not want to obey God. And, and God had defined what's right and wrong. And in this moment, Adam and Eve were tempted, and they chose to define right and wrong on their own. They said, I know you said this is good and this is bad, but I actually think the tree is good. And, and part of the lie that they believed is that God was keeping something from them, that God was keeping good from them. Part of the, the serpent's temptation says that you, it, the day God knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And they said, you know what, I want that. And they, they basically defined good and evil on their own terms, and they ate of the fruit. And in that moment, everything changed. Sin entered the world. Immediately they realized they were naked. Shame entered the, right away entered. They tried to cover up, right, and hide. They hid from God. They hid from one another. The world was cursed in that moment. Death came in. Sin came in. The, the plants didn't grow like they normally would. Like there was weeds that were growing up. There was death. There was pain. There was all of these things that came in immediately. Pain and suffering, injustice, brokenness, all of this came in 
with sin and with rebellion. And our world was broken. And in that moment, human beings were exiled from God's promise. Okay? The image bearers, although we're still created for that, we were distorted and we don't reflect and function the way that we should. And that's what we see really today. Access to God was broken and there was no longer acceptance. This holy and perfect God could no longer be around sin and imperfection because perfection would destroy it, right? It would burn it. Right? Just imagine going towards the sun and the sun is this awesome, powerful force and all imperfections get burnt up, right? Like it's, it was out of God's grace that he exiled human beings and we've been seeing this ever since. But God promised before Adam and Eve left the garden, he says, I will send a seed from the, from the woman, which is interesting that he said that because in this culture, when this was written, they would never give lineage to a female. It would always be to a male. But he said, from your seed, talking to Eve, I will send basically a savior and he will crush the head of the serpent. That was the promise. And then they were sent out. As they are sent out, immediately you have injustice and brokenness spur up. If you read Genesis, immediately there's death, Cain and Abel. There's, suddenly there's this guy killing somebody because he mouthed off to him and, and the Tower of Babel, and there's all this stuff. But we see that God is not absent. God pursues humanity, and he starts over. He chooses another man named Abram at the time, and he basically makes a promise to him. This man was old in his age. He was him and his wife beyond the childbearing years. And in this time, God promises, I'm going to give you a son, and your son has become a, a people, and that people's going to become a nation, and that nation will be a blessing to the whole world. And it says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see grace enter the scene all the way in Genesis, that it's through grace and grace alone that we are made right with God, that righteousness is imputed to us. And Abraham believed God. And it took 20 years for God to fulfill his promise. And when Abraham was renamed, and when he was 100 years old, his son was born. And the, this son became a people. And this people became a nation. And the purpose, again, was to image God to the world. That was their design. He's like, I'm going to make you this people. And he gives them this law. And he says, this is how you're going to function. This is how you're going to you're going to work right. Like this is what's going to communicate to everyone else. You're going to live a certain way and it's going to communicate something about me. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. You're going to image me so that people can come and participate in what I'm doing. And so we see that in the midst of all of this, God returns to the earth for the first time. He gives them instructions when he gives them his law about how to build a dwelling place for himself. It started off as a tent called a tabernacle, and it eventually became a building. And he said, build it to the specifications, and it tells us as the people were wandering in the wilderness, right after they received the law, they build the tent, and it says that God's presence came, and he dwelt within this one tiny little room of this tent. God's physical presence was on the earth. And he said, listen, like you have my presence, you have my law, like this is how you're to live, to be a blessing to the whole world. So we see that, that the image was, was instituted again, right, to image him, but access was, was kind of back, right? Like people could come and they could make sacrifices. They could come into this, this square and they could be close to God's presence. So, so they had access, but it wasn't the same. 
and there was ways for them to have their acceptance and their and and themselves forgiven of their rebellion and he instituted sacrifices right and so we have this idea of this the temple and the law and and the tabernacle allowing access and we have the sacrifices they would let animals take their place so that they could experience forgiven so an animal kind of symbolically would be killed in their place and there before God kind of acceptable if not in that moment so if they obeyed his presence would remain on the earth and so they continued and that tent became a temple and King David's son Solomon built it and it was one of the one of the wonders of the ancient world it was magnificent it was absolutely beautiful and there God's presence dwelt in this room called the Holy of Holies and the nation of Israel grew and became very powerful but they quickly rebelled again and rather than being a blessing to the whole world it became a curse and rather than imaging God to bring people in they hated everyone that wasn't like them they became just racist to be like if you weren't Jewish you were like they the Jews would say at the time that the whole reason that Gentiles which are non-Jewish people were created was to fuel the fires of hell like they didn't like them right so rather than being this people that was imaging God and, and and to bring people in and to let to be a blessing to the whole world they became the opposite and they too began to define good and evil on their own terms they too were determining this is good and this is evil and some of the things they called good was absolutely wicked including child sacrifice to the god Molech they would light this fire and let these hands be bronzed like that hot, right? That the fire would come and they would put their babies into these arms and let their babies burn to death. And that was worshiping, not God, their God Molech. And they said, this is good. Kings were participating in it, right? This is how far the society fell. And so God's physical presence departed. He left the earth again. And he allowed Israel to be conquered. First by Babylon, and then Persia conquered Babylon, and then Greece, and then Rome finally. But it was during Persians conquering of Babylon that God swayed the king of Persia to let them return, whoever wanted to, from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and, and to kind of start over. And so man in Nehemiah, uh, led a group of people to rebuild the wall and a, name, a man named Ezra helped get the temple going and they, they started culture again. It was never the same. They were still under bondage of the nations but they were trying. And it was during this time under oppression from Babylon, Persia, Greek and then finally Rome that they began again to look to the promises that were given to them. You see, they get, God gave a promise to Eve and says, from your seed, there's this snake crusher coming. And he promised King David, he goes, from your offspring, you will always have a king to be on the throne. And Moses led him out of captivity, and, and he said, that Moses said, a prophet like me will be raised up. And so they started combining all of these ideas of what the Savior was going to be. He was going to be this conquering king. He was going to come and free them from oppression like Moses did, and he was going to rule with power like David did, and he was going to crush pain and suffering like this, this snake killer, right? Like, but how is he to come? 
What must we do for the Savior to come? And they concluded, rightly so, to some degree, that they have to obey. They were taken captive because they disobeyed God's law. And if we can obey enough, then we will be saved. If we can obey enough, the Savior will come. We have to be good enough. We have to be worthy enough. We have to be obedient enough. And when we do, the Savior will come. So it leads to the question, well, how do we understand if we're being obedient enough? Like when it says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, what does that mean? Just one example. They're like, well, we've got to figure out what that means. Let's define it. So this rabbi would say, well, I think it says you can't go this amount of space. If you, go longer, if you walk this amount longer, then that's work. But if you do it to this, you've got to get to synagogue so it can be this amount. Or how much is lifting? If I lift this Bible, is that work? Or if I lift that bag, is that work? So rabbis started defining. What do these laws mean? And some rabbis would say this, and other rabbis would say that. And they started formulating these rules. Well, then these, those rabbis would die, and so other rabbis would raise up underneath that rabbi and go, well, we better define, like, what qualifies as a bag it better be like no more than like 15 pounds like what is it is it size so they start making more rules for 400 years and those were all compiled it was called a mishnah and it is a rules upon rules upon rules and they and so when it came to where jesus was coming they were so under bondage of all of these rules, like trying, and there was all these different sects that were, were like the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the, like they were trying so hard to do every little thing, and, and they would have tassels, and they would, would like, they'd, like we have to pray a lot, and we got to have our clothes the right way, and we can't mix these things, and they were, it was so crazy, and that was the culture, and so this was the, the culture of what people were experiencing at this time. We need to understand that because when Jesus comes in and starts saying, nah, you don't need to do that. Nah, you don't need to do that. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. Let's talk about this. They're like, you're going to ruin everything. The Messiah won't come. You can't be the Messiah because you're not fitting our standard. You can't be the Messiah because you're not conquering Rome. You can't be the Messiah because you don't fit into this idea of what we've been told you're going to be like. We've been told how Jesus is supposed to function. We've been told from, from a little, from all the way through like Sabbath school, right? Like we've been told what to expect when the Messiah comes. I've, been, I've, been, I've read it. I've read the, the prophecies. I've read about the prophet like Moses. I've read about the king like David. Jesus didn't fit into any of their boxes. And so as this culture of being pleasing to God and making sure everything is dialed rose and became more powerful, those became the political leaders, okay? It wasn't politicians. It was priests. It was Pharisees. It was the Sanhedrin. And so in Jerusalem and in Israel, the ruling body was of 70 uh, rabbis, essentially, consisting of two parties, the conservatives and the liberals, still around today, okay? Sanhedrin, was consisted of the Sadducees, which is the liberal ones, and the Pharisees with the conservatives. And they ruled. And so the religious leaders were the ruling people of the culture. And as Rome became more and more ruthless, the people became a lot more restless, and they desired to be saved. And then a young Jewish girl came in contact with God himself and said, a Savior's coming. And this woman 
a young, young woman who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And betrothal back then was like an engagement, but it was as though you're already married. And Joseph, the angel came to him, and he, he said, listen, the, this, who's in a room is of God? Like, and so we know the story, right? This is what we're celebrating, this, the story of, of Mary going to Bethlehem and Joseph and Jesus being born. What's cool about Bethlehem is that Bethlehem was where David's great-grandparents, this woman named Ruth, who was from Moab, she's a Moabite woman, and she met and basically became married to a guy named Boaz, and they began their family there. And it's a cool story if you ever read about it, but it was they, that's where their family started, and so that's where King David was eventually born, and that is where Mary and Joseph are ultimately from. And so they're called to go to, their, to Bethlehem for the census. Which is interesting because King David was their hero. Like, he was a legend. Like, King David was the epitome, the epitome of what a king should be. It's cool that Jesus was born there. And it, with that, as that promise was in 2 Samuel, it says, I will raise up an offspring after you, talking to David, and he shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and she, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of kingdom, his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be, be to me a son. Talking about both Solomon, but also this ultimate son that was to come. God promised David that a king would come, but it was, wasn't what they were expecting. And so, let me read the story real quick. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem from Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And we came to worship him. And when Herod heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And they assembled all the chief priests and the scribes from the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. So it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, and by no means are least among the rulers of Judea. For from, all, uh, from, from you shall come a ruler who will be the shepherd of the people of Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me the word that I, say, uh, that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had been seen when it rose before them until they had taken rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary the mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening up their treasures, they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they, warned, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they departed to their own country by another way. And so we have the Magi, or the wise men. So, <clears throat> most likely from Persia, and then also from Babylon. Uh, Babylon. These guys were experts in astrology. I know it sounds crazy. Interpreting dreams and various ever other occult arts. So magi is where we get the word magic. 
And um, one of the things that blows me away about this part of the story is that these guys weren't like believers in Yahweh that we know of. These were men that studied the stars and studied all these other things. And for some reason, God and his sovereignty chose to reveal something to them. And they were the first, essentially, proclaimers to the king, which was Herod, and all the rulers and the religious rulers, like, that a king had been born. The, the shepherds were the first ones. They were the first, essentially, missionaries going out, telling everybody the king is born. But these guys from hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away, comes and says, listen, I don't know if you know this, but the king of the Jews was born. And they're like, Really? I mean, like, literally, like, that's, they're coming, and God has revealed to them that the king of the Jews was born. Here's what's also crazy. They spent, uh, so all of our stories tell us that there was three, but we don't know there was three. We know there was three gifts. That's why there was, the alludes to there was three. There was probably way more. This was a huge entourage. It could have been 20, 50 people. This journey came at a huge huge financial cost and took tons of time in fact it could have taken two years for them to get there because we know from their story that jesus was a child and he was in a house still living in bethlehem and that after they left herod freaked out and wanted to kill every baby under two years old so it's estimated that jesus was probably over one if not one and a half years old could be as old as two years old they could have left it could have taken them two years to travel at great cost and great peril to come. The king that they believed was born was that great. Like, he wasn't just some random king. Like, we are going to travel with our entire entourage and bring tons of, of, spend tons of money and bring these lavish gifts because a king that was proclaimed in the stars has been born. This was not a, like a, a they weren't like in the area and like, hey, we should stop by. We should swing in. I hear a king's born, okay? He was that big of a deal. The king of the world was born. And they find Jesus, and the first thing they do is what? They worship him. We don't worship people. We worship deity. We worship God. The first worshipers of the king was these foreign magicians from another land. people, his religious leaders, didn't even know he was there. And so they offer him gold. They offer him gold. This is the first gift. Gold is for a king. Gold is for royalty. Gold always has been one of the greatest values, things of, of worth in human history. At least in modern history, essentially. Over the last Two, three thousand years. Okay? It was fit for a king. And like I said, it makes sense, of course, that he was king because the king of kings was born where the king of all kings up to this point was born. That was King David. And they were proclaiming that you're going to be, you are the king of Israel. And as we looked at, God had promised David that a king would always sit on his throne. So, of course, it makes sense that these guys get it, that they're offering the king, the baby king the gift of all kings, and that is gold. 
What's crazy is though, as though God promised David that the kingdom would never depart from his, his family and that a king would always be on the throne, the King Jesus came, as we find out way later, and we're not gonna see it in the next couple of weeks because we're gonna see it in John and we've already seen it, is that Jesus, King Jesus functions very different than everybody's expectation of what a king should be. He is a different king bringing a different kingdom. It was a new way to function. It was backwards in so many ways where they expected this time where this this king would come and rule and rule over and be this strong leader. Jesus comes on the scene and says, if you want to be great, you need to be the servant of all. He said that. He also washed his disciples' feet. That's not how a king is supposed to function. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, love. Loving your neighbor. Loving God. Love is what conquers all things. I bring in this kingdom where we're loving people. They're like, wait a minute. You're supposed to come and conquer Rome. We're supposed to have a war. We're supposed to have a revolution. We're supposed to run these people out, and you're supposed to sit on a throne and reign forever. That's what it's supposed to be. He's like, no, we just need to love them. That's not supposed to be what I was expecting. And and he's like, hey, we're going to have a kingdom, and it's not going to have boundaries. It's going to be without limits. Like, no, no, we're, we have our area. We have our borders. We have the areas that we need to get these people out. We need to protect this area. This is our promised land. This is our space. This is where we're supposed to rule. This is our land, and they're in it. And he's like, no, the kingdom that God is bringing permeates all nations. It permeates all continents. It, it, it goes beyond borders. It goes beyond people groups. It goes beyond language. It's a different kingdom. It's a kingdom that we're a part of. It's a kingdom where God pursues the world, not a specific people. It's a kingdom where God is invading nations to bring people to the saving knowledge of his son. Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's not how a kingdom's supposed to operate. Kingdom's supposed to have hierarchy. There's supposed to be rulers, and then rulers under them, and then there's supposed to be everybody else. And Jesus flips it upside down. He says, no, the last should be first, the first should be last. This kingdom that I'm bringing, there is no hierarchy. The citizens love and care for one another. All have value despite their order. All have a place in the story. It's a backwards kingdom. And then Jesus models all this by saying, in my kingdom, the weak are made strong. He wants the weak. And so he goes, rather than picking 12 disciples that should be the best of the best of the best, he chooses like zealots and tax collectors and fishermen and just regular old people with no education and no significant value on anybody that's trying to build a kingdom or build a company. He's like, I'm going to find the worst, and that's how I'm going to build my kingdom. And he did it. I find it interesting that after Jesus resurrected and went uh, back to heaven and his disciples got arrested, and they were, they were standing before uh, the, the leaders, and they were speaking 
and they marveled and they said, how can these men speak this way? They don't, they don't have any education. And it says, and then they realized that they were with Jesus. Being with Jesus changes everything. Changes everything. And Jesus changed them. And so in this kingdom, God values weak, the weaker, the poorer. He values the outcasts. And he gives them the same place at the table as everyone else. God has always established a pattern of using weak and unqualified people to accomplish his plan because he takes those individuals and he equips them and he gives them the ability and he gives them the power so that at the end of the day, people look at that person and go, how in the heck is that person being used by God? And God gets the glory. How are they able to do that? They must have been with Jesus. That person doesn't get the glory. God gets the glory because that's what he's about. And so it's a kingdom filled with marginalized and outcast and weak and unqualified and people that shouldn't have any business to being a part of what's going on, people that have been disqualified, people that have been on the out, that have messed up so bad that nobody would give them a second chance. Those are the people that Jesus is saying, come, come. I'm inviting you into my family. I want to adopt you. I want to bring you in. Come. I want you to be a part of my story. I want you to be a part of my kingdom where Jesus is king. The kingdom of Jesus the Messiah that he was instituting at that time it's continued. And he's still the king. Okay, Jesus is still the king. He's not physically on earth, but he's still the king and he's empowered each and every one of us to continue on the mission of his kingdom. We can rest in Jesus being the king. That means that we don't have to trust in another king or another person that we hope might fix everything. Guess what? Ain't gonna fix it. You can hope all day long, but I promise you, Jesus, King Jesus, is gonna fix things one day. He's gonna make everything right. We're gonna return to the time. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. He's going to make the world right again. Being a part of that kingdom is what he's called. So as we close, you guys can come up and get settled in. We have a scene where Jesus did not meet their expectations, but he met all of the expectations of what you'd expect a king to be. All these religious political leaders were looking for a conquering king and a liberator, and Jesus came in a very different way. Here's what's crazy. You'd expect the king of the world to be miraculously conceived. You would, right? The savior of the world. But not to a poor little Jewish girl that nobody knew of. You would expect that this conquering savior king would be foretold in the stars. You'd expect it. But you know what? You wouldn't, rec- you wouldn't expect it to be recognized from, a, from a people from the east, from a foreign people. Jesus' arrival was proclaimed by angels in the heavens, but the poor shepherds in a field, that didn't matter. You'd expect the king to be, have angels proclaim their arrival. Jesus' first heralds were shepherds. His first breath was in a barn. His first bed was a feeding trough. His first worshipers were royalty, but from another country. 
make no mistake, he is king of the world. But he may not be what we were expecting. Let's pray.